Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much. And Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 4. Horace Slughorn. Despite the fact that he had spent every waking moment of the past few days hoping desperately that Dumbledore would indeed come to fetch him, Harry felt distinctly awkward as they set off down Privet Drive together. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Friends, we are doing a bumper crop of live shows this fall. We're coming to New York City, my new hometown, on September 9th. And I think I might be wearing something very special, so you should definitely come to this show. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Tickets for every show, by the way, are on harrypottersacredtext.com. Just click on the big orange button where you can find tickets for every show. We'll also be back in Boston on October 2nd. We're going to be in Washington, D.C. at the fabulous Sixth and I Synagogue on November 7th. We're in Chicago again on November 21st. And finally, on December 19th, won't you meet me in St. Louis? We're coming to the Midwest and we're going to be in St. Louis for my first visit to that great city. So I hope you'll join us there. Well, Casper... I have a little bit of trivia for you. Say more. Did you know 
that the oldest continuously conducted annual sailing regatta in the world is hosted in Sydney, Australia. I did not, but I'll be glad to tell you that we have a Harry Potter sacred text reading group in Sydney, Australia. It's run by the amazing Kirsty, and the group is called Harry Potter and the Goblet of Hot Chocolate, which I think is fantastic. Go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups to find out when and where they meet and how you can join them. Vanessa, it's your turn to tell a story this week. What you got, mate? So my story is actually sort of hot off the presses. This just happened a few weeks ago. I was on one of our pilgrimages. I was on our Pride and Prejudice pilgrimage. And so I was in a beautiful part of your country in the Peak District. Oh, so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And so I was just in this like beautiful, beautiful place that I'd always wanted to go. And so I was just sort of like on cloud nine. And we were at this beautiful pub in, you know, a rural part of the Peak District. And it like had good music playing. And we were like arguing about a book. And it was just like nerdy and beautiful and hearthy. And I had this great like window view and I looked out the window and I saw a giraffe. What? And first of all, you need to know this about me. Giraffes are my favorite animal. Like I love giraffes. And I look out the window and there is just there's a giraffe. And so I yell, oh, my God, there's a giraffe. And everybody turns around and is like, nope, that's a spotted horse. And what happened was the the pub was sort of like low in the ground, like we were a little bit below ground level. And then the beautiful spotted horse was, there are witnesses, I can verify this, was on a high perch. And it did have the coloring of a giraffe. But what with the way that optical illusions played a role in this, I actually think the reason that I thought I saw a giraffe was that I was so blissed out in that moment that anything felt possible. I was like, I don't know. We've seen cool slugs and bats and someone had llamas. Like, wonderful things are happening here. Maybe I'm finally going to get to meet a giraffe. And I think that that is one of the things about joy. I think that when we experience joy, part of what we are experiencing is that feeling that Anything is possible. Maybe I will finally get to meet a giraffe in rural England. Levels of possible. Oh, but I love that. And I love that you were so excited that it was like this public exclamation. (laughs) Yeah, there wasn't like a, I'm sorry, is that a giraffe? There was none of that. There was like proclamation of fact. (gasps) That is a giraffe. I see it so clearly from the window. Pure joy. Everybody felt bad telling me that it wasn't. Like, it wasn't like, no, nerd. They were like, like, oh. I'm sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) That is definitely a horse. Jeff the horse. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that idea that actually new things are possible when we're joyful. That's something that I think is going to be especially interesting to look at in this chapter because what Dumbledore kind of manages to create with Horace is an experience perhaps not quite of joy. We'll have to figure that out. But certainly he shifts his core mindset from danger to possibility in a really interesting way. Mm. So let's dig in to figure out what happens in this chapter in our joyful 30-second recap. It's my turn to go first. So set the clock. Okay. On your mark. Get set. 
Go. So Harry and Dumbledore apparates the first time that Harry's apparated and they're like a few streets away. And um, he, uh, Dumbledore's like, okay, you need to come with me. We're going to visit Horace Slughorn. He's an old colleague of mine. They walk in. Oh my God, it looks like there's been an attack. But secret, no, it's actually Horace Slughorn who made it look like there's an attack because he's running away from Death Eaters and he's been on the move for a year, moving from week to week. And there's nice boxes of chocolates and velvet and it's all very nice and lovely. And then basically uh, Dumbledore like does a strategic wee moment and we don't know if he's actually weeing because he's just letting Horace talk to Harry and then Horace like, okay, I'll come with you because I'm scared, but also joyful. I love a strategic we. I mean, who's not done that on a date? Sorry, I just got to use the bathroom. (laughs) I don't use it as strategy. I use it as like a break. Yeah, breaks are strategic. (laughs) Oh. Vanessa, 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So I feel like one of the only things you missed there, you know, Dumbledore is trying to recruit Slughorn to come and be the potion teacher, but... um, there is this really intense moment between Slughorn and Harry where he's like, oh, you're the son of Lily Evans. She was one of my favorite students. And it was so surprising because she was actually muggle-born. <gasps> and so you find out this, like, sort of insidious kind of bigotry at Slughorn's, um, at, at the center of Slughorn. And you also find out that he's a collector of people. And so Dumbledore's like, be careful, Harry. He's going to want to collect you. Also, he was head of Slytherin House. Yeah. So let's start with Slughorn, Vanessa, because I was so enraptured by the description of Slughorn. And I have to say, even on this rereading, I was pulled in and then like something shifted halfway through the chapter because we get all of this description of Slughorn as luxurious, right? Like the surroundings. I I mentioned the velvet and the silk and the silver. And at first I was like, oh yeah, this is like classic character building where you just get a sense of the person by their surroundings. And then I had forgotten that halfway through the chapter, we learned this is not his house. And the only thing that he brings with him, apart from all the pictures, which he did bring with him, is his grand piano. And music making so often is about joy, like the pure joy of of making music. So I want to touch on that. And the photographs are also about joy. That's true. They're relationships, right? Like, as you said, he collects people and he kind of finds young students who are going to be brilliant in whatever career they go into. And, you know, he he kind of shows off to Harry. He's like, oh, I get tickets to whatever game I want with this Quidditch team, the Harpies. You know, I get nice info from Gringotts Bank whenever I want it. <laughs> yeah, he confesses to insider trading. Yeah, I was like, this is not a good first move <laughs> with a 16-year-old on your own. But we see that, you know, those relationships have been cut off. And I think that's a really important moment in his decision-making process when he's like, oh, do I want to keep living like this? Or do I want something that's more stable and and more connected? Because I think he's become very lonely. From what we know, he doesn't have a partner, he doesn't have children. These relationships are what make his life joyful and they've been cut off. So this, all of that is in the mix. So help me figure out where does joy show up in that? mix. First of all, my mind is blown. I thought that what got him back to Hogwarts was Harry's sort of pitch of like, won't you actually be safer at Hogwarts? And I think that you're exactly right. I think that that might be sort of like the death blow to Harry's pitch. But also Harry being like, oh, have you not talked to anyone in a year? must give him that sadness and reminder of the joy of connectedness. Mm. You know, I came into this chapter this time being like, first of all, good on Slughorn. He believed Dumbledore and Harry long before everybody else if he's been on the run for a year. For real. He is a smart man who knows what's up. And second of all, he is entitled to his retirement. I understand that Dumbledore wants him there for strategic reasons. And I understand that Slughorn is being a coward. So we are to 
I think, hold him to account for that. But when he's saying to Dumbledore, like, I am old and tired, I'm like, yes, retirement is allowed. And I think that seeing Harry, it's this I could commodify more kids. I could collect more kids. But I think it's also like I could love and take joy from more kids. He said that Lily was one of his favorites. And Lily, we know because she died so young, like never was able to like give him anything tangible. And I don't think Slughorn simply collects people for the tangible gifts. I agree. Absolutely agree. Right? Like he's like, it's too bad I didn't get serious. I would have liked the set, which is like a crass, horrible way to talk about humans. But like, he does seem to be someone who enjoys his students. And that is a gift in a teacher. I really, I really agree with you that there's multiple things going on. One is that he's realizing, gosh, if I haven't you know, aligned myself with the Death Eaters by now, they're going to figure out that I'm not on their side. So I may as well be closer to Dumbledore and be safe. A hundred percent. That is part of the what's going on here. But on the other hand, he is being reminded about what he loved about being a teacher, which is not only a chance of being connected and learning and, and getting those nice fruit baskets, but I think it's about him being useful in the world. I agree. I, he's clearly a talented wizard, right? He says, actually, I only had two minutes to do all of this because I was in the bath. So he's, he's clearly an extraordinary magical person. Person, but the only way he's able to show it is hiding in people's houses while they're on vacation. So I think at some point for him, he's like, either it's irrelevance and running, or it's a place to give my gifts, being in relationship with people, safety, and being on someone's side, which will have consequences. And I think that you're absolutely right that we just learned so much about him from the fact that like he's keeps carrying his piano with him, right? And it feels yeah. like for someone who is so obsessed with his safety, if he was only obsessed with his safety, he would have given up on the piano. Oh my God, I love that. Right. And he's like, no, I want to play Vanessa Carlton, making my way downtown, walking fast. And like, you don't do that if you're just trying to hide. Right. I mean, as you all know, a couple of years ago, I went through my Apocalypse Dark Times spell. And I still do sometimes. I was going to say, that's over? Well, it just, it was an obsession for a while where I was really putting together a kit, you know? Right. So when I was putting together my apocalypse kit and I was doing research as to what should go into an apocalypse bag and how you should sort of theologically think about what should go into your apocalypse bag, one piece of advice was make sure that there are things in there that bring you joy. And they gave a lot of examples. And so what I put in mine was a romance novel and some chocolate because I was like, if I have to wait out a storm, right, if the electricity is out and like I'm eating canned food and all the things that are in my and let's be honest, it's not an apocalypse bag. It's a storm box that I have. Like, I don't just want to be eating canned food for those few days that I'm stuck at home. I also want to be like reading and eating chocolate, right? Because surviving isn't just about surviving. It's about having a reason to live. Mm. And so I think I think Slughorn is embodying that, right? He's like, I'll be on the run, but I'm still going to take my piano. Yeah. I'm just seeing more and more of how big a decision that is. You know, to be on the run. And he's been on the run for a year. Yeah. Like, he must be exhausted. So he's been in 52 different homes at this point. And it's only so much fun to have a bubble bath on your own every night. You know? like Oh, yeah. We can guess that he hasn't had really much human contact at all. And I was even thinking, how many comfortable nights does he have, right? Mm. Because you get to a new place, and it's two or three nights before you start thinking about where am I going next, having to find the next place, right? right? Right. Even though he stays a whole week at a time, I feel like it's always looking for the next thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. So Casper, I know that this is not how we do theme conversations, but a moment in this chapter that gave me joy. Uh Uh-huh. Is when Dumbledore is saying to Harry, I'm guessing you didn't take the pamphlet very seriously because you didn't ask me my favorite jam, which is raspberry, by the way. But if I was a good Death Eater, I would know that about myself anyway. (laughs) But what gave me joy about that moment, it's that Dumbledore, on the pamphlet, it was like you should have these code words between family and close friends. Mm. And in just a few chapters, we'll see that Molly and Arthur have these tricks for each other to figure out how to talk to each other, right? And so that it's for very close family. And I just think this is like a little love kernel that Dumbledore is dropping for Harry of Mm. like, we're close family slash friends. You should know my favorite kind of jam is raspberry. Well, that makes me think about this whole episode. You know, we look at Harry as bait in this situation. We look as Dumbledore as kind of another master genius strategist. But like, what if we saw this as like Dumbledore being like, Harry, let's make memories together. Like, <laughs> I because I think he knows that he's going to convince Slughorn. Like, I don't think this is a huge challenge for Dumbledore. He's actually, I think, seeing this as a chance to like build more of a connection with Harry. I actually completely agree because he could just go to Slughorn and be like, 
Harry Potter is there. I got pictures. Yeah, you don't need the actual kid to be like, what are you doing? You've been on the run for a year. You're exhausted. Come to Hogwarts. I'll keep you safe. Eat your candied pineapple. Hang out with Harry Potter. Like, I I also think it's to level Harry up, being Mm. like, we are now going on adventures together. We are now doing things for the order together, right? Like, Well, and that's going to be so important towards the end of this book. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting, Vanessa, because this actually really parallels an earlier chapter that we read where we see Narcissa and Bellatrix traveling together at nighttime to go into a house to meet with someone who doesn't expect them. Even Dumbledore's explanations about why we don't apparate into someone's front door makes sense of this earlier scene that we saw with Snape. So... I do really think that this this repositioning of Harry as student teacher towards, I mean, there's still clearly a, a boundary of authority. But in this chapter, Dumbledore also says, like, I want to give you private lessons. And I actually think this trip was the first lesson. Oh, absolutely. And I think that he's intentionally built in, like, social bonding time. Like, this is icebreaker question time for, like, their new relationship, right? right? Vanessa, there's action and reflection. We've got good pedagogy at Hogwarts. <laughs> Dumbledore takes Harry on an adventure and then they sit down and talk about it. Finally. (laughs) Yes, I think it is a rare, rare example of some good pedagogy. There are bad pedagogical moments in it. Like, I don't think he is ever scared that they are walking in on a crime scene. Yeah. Whereas he lets Harry be scared that Harry, who's just witnessed death after death after death, is walking in on another death scene. I didn't love that. Well, and I was a little scared, too. So Dumbledore could have been a bit more considerate. (laughs) I mean, I guess I do wonder. Maybe Dumbledore is concerned that there's been an actual crime. And then at some point he figures out that there isn't. And that's why he sticks his wand in in a funny way. Can we talk about that moment? Yeah. Because it was interesting to me that a slughorn like basically says like, ow, that hurt. You didn't need to do it that hard. And to me, it did say, like, Dumbledore meant it. That was not just like, oh, wake up, sleepyhead. It was like, take this. There was something purposeful about it. Yeah. Don't you think that Dumbledore is a little bit doing that for the comedy, right? He's (laughs) like, oh, I just walked you into a really stressful situation. I was scared, too. This was probably traumatizing for you. Let me get a laugh to release a little bit of joy in this stressful moment. That's smart. So I think he's playing to his audience and his actual audience here is Harry. There is a moment in my life that haunts me a little bit that, so when I went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem with my family and some close friends, I made jokes like the whole time, Mm. not loudly, right? Like I made them mostly to my father and my dad liked them. Like it was like funny. And then we also had real conversation, but our friend scolded me and I go back and forth on that moment. And I sometimes feel tremendous shame, like, oh, like, I shouldn't have been making those jokes. And then other times I'm like, who the heck is he to tell me that I shouldn't have been going through that with a little bit of gallows humor? And really, the lesson that I took from that Holocaust memorial is that I do not need to go to the Holocaust memorials. They are not built for me. For me, they are so overwhelmingly painful that, like, the only way that I can go through it is with gallows humor. I'm with you. So Dumbledore, like, obviously stabbing your friend with a wand hard is, like, not appropriate, and that's violent, and Slughorn is hiding for good reason, and, you know, like, this is, like, not a cute move of, like, Dumbledore poking Slughorn rather than saying, like, hey, Slughorn, it's me, Dumbledore, come out. I see you. Right. It's this, like, inappropriate moment, but I'm sort of fine with it. 
humor with a little poke or a little bite or a little bit of inappropriateness. And again, looking back, I think I would have less of mixed feelings about what my friend's intervention if he had said, I don't want to hear those jokes. But I think by making those jokes to my father, um, who was like helping him get through that experience too, was actually fine. Yeah. If you got on the loudspeaker, different different yeah. situation. But that's not what you were doing. No. And frankly, you were with someone who was a survivor. So yeah. Somebody interviewed my grandpa. He was already in his 80s about laughter in Auschwitz. Oh, um, wow. My grandfather went and spoke at a lot of high schools. He lived into his 90s, and so he was sort of, you know, there are obviously still survivors who are alive, but they're really dying out. And so yeah. he, he saw it as his responsibility to, like, do every interview that he was asked to do and give testimony as many times as he was asked to. And somebody asked if they could interview him for, like, an ethnography about laughter in Auschwitz. And my grandfather was like, nobody laughed in Auschwitz. It was very important to him. And then he told us a story of the one time he couldn't remember laughing in Auschwitz. He refused to tell it to the person. Mm. And there was actually a tremendous amount of, like, shame and guilt for him for the one time that he found himself laughing. And so part of me wants to, like, rise up against it and be like, no, there are places where the light does not shine enough for there to be joy. Yeah. But I do think that humans want to laugh. Humans want to poke. And, human, and like, there's something beautiful about that endeavor. And But I think it's something to honor within us. I think that helps us understand something about joy. Because in my sense, I, I don't think those jokes were joy, right? Like, those were ways of processing the overwhelming horror of what was happening and not, like, be subsumed by them. And I think joy is something which isn't, like, it's not for something else. It's just for itself. That's interesting. You know what I mean? Totally. Because I think that you're right, that it was about, it was a defense mechanism and not about like harnessing moments of joy within despair, which is a different thing, right? Which is like, I think that sitting Shiva is something where there is actually a lot of joy and joking and like laughing at funny stories from the person who's died and like finding genuine joy, even in moments of sorrow that I think you're right. My story was not about joy. It's about something else. Yeah. And that moment when Dumbledore sticks his wand into, you know, Slughorn's belly or whatever the part of the cushion is that he's transformed himself into, like, that's also not about joy. I think it's about, like, wake up. There's something about it which is which is confronting. Like, it's confrontational. It's saying, like, you're hiding and I see you. And if you're hiding and I see you, guess who else is? Like, there's not even quite a threat in there, but it's like holding up a mirror to Slughorn and saying, like, this trick is running out of time and you have to make a decision. Totally. And it's just so beautiful because, right, he pokes Slughorn in this complicated moment of, like, almost violence where I think we both agree that it's like, hey, buddy, wake up. I see you. Harry, everything is fine. Release valve. Like, (laughs) laugh moment. And then it's, do you want me to help you clean up? I love that that's the first thing that he says. And, like, let's go back to back and, like, and we will clean this up together. Again, not condoning violence, but there's something like smacking your friend being like, okay, and I will help you clean up. Well, and he shows his own withered hand. Yeah. He shows the damage of his right hand. And so he's showing vulnerability in his own way of saying like, yeah, I don't have it all together either. We will need each other. And I think that has something to say about joy because it's, I don't know, my experience, joy when it's shared is always twice the size. And I think maybe this whole experience for Slughorn and perhaps also for Dumbledore is a revival of a friendship that was important for both of them. I mean, we've talked about how lonely Dumbledore is 
And here is an old friend and colleague, maybe around the same age, maybe someone not quite at the same magical skill, but clearly a powerful wizard. I think there's some longing from Dumbledore in this as well. Yeah, that has just made me rethink something that struck me in this chapter. So the moment where Dumbledore says, Harry, is your scar hurting anymore? And Harry's like, no, and it surprised me. And then, like, Dumbledore sort of smiles and seemingly takes joy from the fact that, like, he was right and Harry was wrong. (laughs) He was like, I know the way that Voldemort thinks. He's probably using occlumency against you. (laughs) And there's this, like, moment of, like, joyful pride, right? Of, like, yeah, I was right. But I think that maybe... You know, he's willing to show his vulnerabilities of, like, I'm dying, like, this part of my body is dying, and I made sort of a mortal error or calculation, and I am weaker than I've ever been, but I've sort of still got it. Oh, yeah. And I think that we all have those moments, too, right? I mean, I just, after being sick for so long, I've started running again. Like, the first time that I hit a mile time that I was like, oh, this used to, like, be my mile time, and I am used to be my regular mile time where I could run three to four miles at that pace and I ran one mile at that pace, but whatever. Long journey starts with the first step. Absolutely. There was this like joyful pride, right? Of like, okay, I still have it. Yes, absolutely. The final place where I really see joy show up in this chapter is in Slughorn's delight in this collecting vibe, right? I mean, he literally says, as you said, oh, I'd have loved to have Sirius Black as part of the, the set with his brother Regulus. He clearly derives real joy. This is something that that is an endeavor, right? There's there's work to be done and there's a reward at the end. And I get it, like collecting can be really satisfying. This, and I think that's the word maybe that's associated with joy here is satisfaction. You know, I collected stamps as a kid and all sorts of things as you do as, as a child. Agatha Christie novels. Agatha Christie novels, you know. And part of this, this I would have liked to have this set is about, oh, I can complete something. Like, yes, life is this messiness, but here is something that's controllable and there's seven and I'm going to find all seven. I mean, even in the Horcruxes and the Hallows later on, we're going to see the same vibe. Now, there's there's a greater purpose amongst yeah. both of those sets, but there's something inherently satisfying to us. And I, I wanted to think about that satisfaction and joy and collecting that we see in this chapter. Yeah, I think that like up to six months ago, I would have been like, I don't have that instinct in me. What are you collecting now? But I have plants. Yes. And I just can't get enough of them. And I love that they all have slightly different needs. Yes. These three need direct sunlight. These need partial sunlight. These need to be watered daily. These every other day. And now that I, like, have my plants that, like, were in relationship with each other, I'm looking for my next plant. And I'm like, are you worthy of my collection? (gasps) And, like, I keep rejecting plants. I'm like, no, I don't know if you're good enough. And this started, Ariana bought me a plant as a housewarming gift a couple years ago, and it has just become a thing. And now there are just plants everywhere. So anyway, I I am not a collector. I like to own as few things as possible. I like don't want the set. If somebody is like, the 49th book isn't good, but it completes the set. I'm like, well, it sounds like the 49th book isn't good. So I'm just like not going to read it. Like, I am not a completer of things. But I understand this like satisfaction of collecting and feeling like, 
oh, I want to continue to collect. Well, this is helpful because it it turns the students that Slughorn has had not just into objects that increases his status, but relationships in which he is responsible for something. You know, we hear about the benefits that he gets, but we, we only get little hints of the benefits that his former students get from still being in relationship. The Gringotts example is the most obvious one where, like, he gets to suggest junior employees, so maybe people who've just finished school or, or other young people that he knows. So that plant story is helpful because I think that people he's in touch with probably get something from his mentorship or connections. I mean, at a minimum, they got to go to these networking parties that we know he throws, That's which right. are really elitist and problematic. But the people who were part of the collection got and, that benefit. And the food is good. Yeah. <laughs> So, Casper, we are going to be doing Marginalia again. So we have swapped books. And what is a note that you are finding in my book that is, I love how you actually said it last week, that is like a note that is opening a door into a new point of view. I'm really struck by a line that you highlighted that I had looked at as well, just this reading, which is, he killed enough people to make an army of them, of course. Yeah. And you wrote, oh, my God, did I know that he had killed that many people? And I think that's what's so powerful about this image. It, this is about the inferi, the inferi. I'm not, still not quite sure how to say it. But it's essentially an army of the dead. And an army is such an evocative image, right? Like, it's not just one battalion. It's like fields full of bodies with weapons. And, you know, we've talked about this being a war. And we've seen individual stories and small, I mean, I don't want to say skirmishes, but the battle in the ministry involves like maybe 20 people. And so when we're starting to be introduced to this kind of scale, the whole thing just becomes much more real to me. And I think it makes this moment so important because what Slughorn is facing is a choice that we face, right? Which is like, well, which side are you on? And I think when we have that image of an army of the dead, how can you choose that side? Yeah. I mean, the thing that blew my mind to your point was the scale. I guess to some extent, I felt like I know the names of everyone who's died in this war so far. Even this book, right? It's Madame Bones. It's Emmeline Vance. Right. And the numbers are getting up there. But like the idea that it would be an army of people, I, I guess I did. I thought that these were tragic, horrible sort of small-ish scale battles where we're talking about a dozen people, two dozen people, which is a tragedy, but armies of the dead. I was just like, oh, this has gone from... Well, it's gone from a tragedy to a statistic, to to use that horrible Stalin phrase. Yeah. Right? Like one one death, one story is evocative and horrifying, and 3.5 million people is a number. Yeah. And so, yeah, it just completely haunted me. And I, for some reason, it had passed me by every time I had read that in the past. Mm, mm. I mean, the other thing it is so evocative of is within Hogwarts, we know characters, we know individual people in the class, but I can't help but think that there are more people in every year than we ever get to meet. And and certainly, of course, there's more years that, that we never get to know. And so the magical world just feels, it feels bigger because of this moment. I really appreciate you underlining that. So a slightly different direction. You underlined that he wrote all ex-students all signed about the photos on the wall. And so you wrote no children, right? Because he would obviously have photos of his children up also. Well, hopefully. And you wrote no children. Gay? Question mark. 
And I mean, I think that the lives of all of these teachers are fascinating. Like, none of them have children or seem to be married, right? Like, which isn't the way that most boarding schools work, I don't think. And so I love this queer reading of Slughorn. Do you want to say more? Well, this was one of the reasons why I think the relationship between Dumbledore and Slughorn is so important. We know that the most important romantic relationship in terms of the impact on Dumbledore's life is certainly not Slughorn if they ever were together. But there is some sort of like camaraderie in this scene, like some sense of shared experience. And like there's a sense of silly, funny, queeny teasing that I just really love. And I don't think it's a wild stretch to see Slughorn as a gay character. This whole metaphor of running and hiding just as like a closeted metaphor, I, th- I think is really, really strong. But I, I, ju- I just love thinking of this moment as a, as a scene between two older gay men who are like, yeah, we have chosen different lives. But like, you know, when we were 21, we had this shared experience or as colleagues, right? 20 years later, we had this shared experience and... Maybe we're not talking about it publicly, but I feel connected to you in a way that I can just show up in your house and be like, girl, <laughs> get it together. Um, I, I think that's why I like Slughorn. It, it, it makes him sympathetic to me, I think, to have this extra layer of identity mixed up in how I read him. So just one other thing, Casper, before we end Marginalia, that you underlined is that Slughorn is demanding a pay rise. And so my question for you... Yeah. Is like, is he being a war profiteer? Is he like, this is chaos? No, he's just holding his own. This is his way. It's the very last thing of the chapter. He's like, and I want a pay rise. As Dumbledore and Harry walking out, this is the way of giving himself a story that makes it acceptable that he's taking a job that he didn't want to do. I love that. But say more why you thought he was a war profiteer. (laughs) I was just like, he's exploiting a weak moment in Dumbledore. And it's like, there's chaos right now. I'm going to come in and take mine. But I think that you're right. I do that, too, where I'm like, you know, I'm just a great justifier. But what you're pointing to is really important. I mean, we've talked about the Holocaust a lot in this episode. And there are many companies that make good money out of the Holocaust. Oh, right? yeah. Like IBM made the machines that clicked the holes through who was going to the death camps and who wasn't. So all of this is is, is complex. And, you know, certainly this war is going to have winners and losers. I mean, let's not be too quick to point the finger, though, because even the twins, I think, are going to be straddling this line in an interesting way. Oh, yeah. So let, let's hold that question until we get to the fabulous new joke shop. <laughs> this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week, our voicemail is from Viviana Zolozzano. Hi, HP Sacred Text team. My name is Viviana calling from Cary, North Carolina. A few weeks ago, I was listening to the Owl Post edition with Matt Potts on the theme of apocalypse. Although the topic remained mostly centered around the climate crisis and the end of human civilization specifically, I heard, and my heart heard, Matt's words saying, the end of things. And it's those words, that idea, which compels me to share with you today. Shortly before that podcast, my husband and I came to a decision to separate after nine years of marriage. The road to that decision was long, painful, and that continues to be the case. The question of what happened is a thing that repeats itself over and over again from everywhere, but nowhere more than in my own heart. And there are many answers, and at the same time, no answers at all to that question. But what intrigued me so about that podcast was the focus not on the question of what happened, but on what happens now. Matt shared when he finds his congregants grappling with devastating news or when thinking about the future of the world and its resources, naturally the first reactions are powerful and overwhelming. But then, when something, capital H, happens, you are met with the truth about the people you love. And what comfort people find in the aftermath begins with the intention to treat the time they have left as sacred. We may not have any idea on how to solve the problem, but we can tend to it with care treating it, whatever it is, how we should have been treating it all along. Whether that's consideration, kindness, empathy, sympathy, even love. And it's so hard to do, so hard not to just rail against the cruel injustice and give up and give in to the feelings of despair. But these words, and the calling to fill whatever time remains with good, is something that's been helping me get through. So I have a blessing for myself and for anyone else going through the end of things. Let us be kind to ourselves and others, and let us have the heart to face it head on. Make the decision to fill it with goodness, light, and strength, so that we can close the chapters of the books that we have to, with our body and our souls intact. Thank you so much for the podcast and everything you do. I'll keep listening. Viviana, I love you modeling. I would like to offer a blessing for myself. I just think that that is such a beautiful, a beautiful thing to do. And I know that this is a cliche, but it might be a cliche that hits your ears right 
right now and maybe it's not, but endings are also beginnings. And so I hope that as hard as this ending is for you, that the beginning in front of you will be a peaceful and and to today's theme, a joyful one. Mm. Yes, thanks, Viviana. Vanessa, we are going to end our show as we always do with a blessing. And this week I have talked a lot about him, but I just want to bless Horace Slughorn. I want to bless Horace for his resilience. Mm. I, You know, I've always seen him, frankly, and I feel bad now, but like a little bit as a spoil, like soft, kind of laughable, uh, cowardly figure. And this reading this week makes me think of him really as as, as a powerful, resilient, kind of a, a warrior in his own way. And so I, I want to bless him for his strength and for his resilience. And I want to bless anyone who feels like Maybe they've always been seen as weak or soft and to see ourselves really as as resilient and strong. Um, I think we have a model in Horace. So blessing for him and for all of us. How about you, Vanessa? Here, here. I would like to offer a blessing for Molly Weasley, who I think at the very end of this chapter gets a little bit of short shrift. Harry is so excited when they arrive at the burrow, and he's like, my best friend Ron is in there, Molly Weasley is in there, and she's such a great cook. And I just want to offer a blessing to Molly because we know that she's so much more than a great cook, and Harry knows that she's so much more than a great cook. And I think that the burrow is Molly, and Molly is the burrow, that everything beautiful about the burrow is Molly. And I think that so much of his positive association of the burrow is about the actual grace and hospitality. And we just heard in the last chapter the actual request that Dumbledore made of Petunia, which was to treat Harry as if he was a second son. Mm. And Petunia misses that invitation and Molly hears it. And so I want to offer a blessing to Molly for doing what Petunia failed so miserably at. And the final thing is that when he thinks of the borrow, he just thinks of Ron and he loves Ron. I know. It's so good. It's such a sweet little moment. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode or come and join the 1,200 people supporting us on Patreon. There are new perks. You can leave us a review on iTunes or send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you soon at one of our live shows. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 5, An Excess of Phlegm, with special guest John Green on the theme of yearning. Don't forget to check out The Women of Harry Potter. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, associate produced by Chelsea Urson. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. Thanks to Viviana Solazzano for this week's voicemail. Thanks to Julia Agi, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Fulsell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Do you think that I'm being elitist about my plants when I see another plant at Home Depot and I'm like, no, not you? Do you think that plant is like, well, this is unfair? Helga Hufflepuff would say all of them are welcome. <laughs> I can't have all the plants. Well, Helga seemed to. I'll take the lot. Then <laughs> I go into Home Depot on Saturday <laughs> and just yell, I'll take the lot. <laughs> I, I don't take any mixed varieties. <laughs> I only take pure plants. <laughs>